0: Micromanaging is a terrible strategy for bosses, and nanomanaging is even worse, but does it have merit on the trail? Then, five ways that you can nanomanage your little domain. Next, on the Summit Gear Review, a lightweight solution to cooking for a family. For today's backpack hack of the week, learn when to bring shallots, prime rib, and crusty bread. And we'll wrap up the show with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Donald Miller. All this, and that's about it, today on The First 40 Miles.
1: We've all heard of micromanaging. It's the term that we always use in the office when someone just has their thumb on their employees. And every little action is managed by that manager. And, of course, it feels pretty stifling to the employees because they don't really have any freedom to kind of put their own creativity or their own talents into what they do. And then I guess there's a term called nanomanaging, which is, like, even worse than micromanaging.
0: But on the trail, if you approach it correctly, it has a really natural feel to it. So the art of nanomanaging means that you are anticipating, predicting outsmarting and responding to external and internal conditions while on the trail.
1: You know, micromanaging and nanomanaging get such a bad rap, but the fact is that in many situations, they're the right thing. So when you're managing people, yeah, not so much. It's better to let them have their, their space to do a good job on their own. But take like the engine in a car. I have a car that's 50 years old, and it does not nanomanage its engine. It's more, I-, I would say, that it governs the engine. <laughs> you know, like, you're relatively confident that you're going to get a mixture of air and fuel that's at least a good enough ratio that it's actually going to burn. And you're going to have all kinds of emissions out the tailpipe, but whatever. I mean, it runs. But modern cars have a computer that is nanomanaging every minute detail of the operation of the engine. Exactly how much fuel is being sprayed through the fuel injector on every single stroke and the exact timing of the spark. And you know all of these things are just being nanomanaged like to the microsecond level. And the result is an engine that runs much more smoothly is much more powerful and lasts much longer with less maintenance.
0: So we talked about these external versus internal conditions that you can nanomanage on the trail. External conditions would mean responding to things like heat, cold, wind, rain, altitude, light, terrain, and wildlife. Sometimes we lose ourselves in the rhythm of the trail and forget that we are out in Mother Nature's territory. So nanomanaging these external conditions really means being cognizant of your surroundings.
1: This reminds me of day four of our Mount Hood hike, where we had enjoyed great weather the entire week up till then, and that morning was great as well. But because we had guys in our group who were watching the weather patterns up in the sky, and because they saw that, uh, what's it called, the sombrero around Mount Hood, they knew that within an hour it would be raining on us. So we were able to stop and put on our rain gear. Everyone except you, who didn't Mm, have any. Too bad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Before the rain started falling.
0: Yeah, that was an incredible moment to see them read the sky.
1: Yeah, we put on our rain gear and minutes later, the rain comes down.
0: That's a great example of being aware of those external conditions that are typically environmental and reacting to them. We also can respond to internal conditions. That would be things like thirst, hunger, body temperature, fatigue, your mental state, your attitude, and your comfort level. You know, sometimes we believe that as backpackers, we need to soldier on when in fact pain is the language that our body uses to talk to us. I mean, in a lot of cases, discomfort can be ignored, but true pain, that's your body talking to you. And internal conditions will vary from person to person. Just because you're feeling thirsty doesn't mean your hiking partner or your child that you're hiking with will feel that same thing.
1: And that's one reason why it's so crucial to hike your own hike and why people talk about that phrase. You could be tempted to hike along with a group and think, oh, I'm starting to get hungry or I'm starting to get thirsty or I'm getting a little too hot, but nobody else seems to be affected. So I guess I'll just uh, stay quiet and keep hiking. You don't need to do that you can go ahead and stop and say, hey, I'm thirsty, I'm going to take a drink. Maybe no one else is thirsty. That's fine. It doesn't mean anything's wrong with you. Uh, You're hungry, get something to eat. If you're too hot, do something about it.
0: Yeah, and this is especially important with blisters. If you start to feel that hot spot in your foot, take the time to sit down and check it out really quickly. Um, Maybe put on some Leukotape or moleskin or whatever you use to protect your feet. And then you can prevent something that may cause problems later on down the trail if you don't stop and take care of it really it's not about control it's about anticipating and predicting outsmarting and responding to what's going on outside of you and inside of you and nanomanaging is a learned skill we call it the art of nanomanaging it just means you need to be present uh, responsive to your environment and what's going on inside, and then completely adaptable, which I think is the number one, uh, maybe number two, one of the top 10 traits of backpackers. We're just adaptable people.
1: So this conversation leads into today's top five list, which is the top five things that you can nanomanage on the trail.
0: And this is one of those lists, again, that it's not comprehensive. It's just a starting point. The number one thing that you can nano-manage on the trail is your balance, and this means that you can check to see how your pack is really fitting. There are four different adjustment straps on an internal frame pack, which is the most common style of pack currently. There are shoulder straps, there's a sternum strap, which goes across your chest, there's a hip belt, which tends to be where the load rests, and then there are load adjuster straps, which kind of behind your neck.
1: Those are the ones that I think most beginners miss. These are the little straps that go from kind of a higher point on your pack to your shoulder straps. For the most part, they affect how snugly the pack is fitting against your upper back. So when you pull those tight, the load is going to be closer to your body and more stable. And when you loosen those up, the load will drop backwards a little bit. Be a little more free-floating, I guess you could say. It'll feel
0: more like an external frame pack if you loosen those ones up. Uh, Same with the shoulder straps. If you loosen the shoulder straps and the load adjuster straps, it'll kind of fit loose and maybe sway when you walk.
1: This topic of keeping the right balance reminds me of the principle that if you're in an airplane and you're going to circumnavigate the Earth, if your bearing is off by just one degree, Then after you have circumnavigated the Earth, you are off by nearly 500 miles from your original starting point. Just that one degree difference. So I think of that when I think of pack balance and getting those straps all adjusted right. You're kind of making these micro adjustments throughout the day and i would say especially the beginning of the day when you, like the first couple hours of hiking you really do a lot of adjusting just these little tiny adjustments and the reason for that is because if you don't do that and you've got a pain point and you don't respond to it then yeah it's not a big deal at the time but after 10 hours of hiking then it really adds up over time so it pays to do that little adjustment early on to avoid having that big impact at the end of the day or or even The end of the week as you keep hiking on that pain point
0: the number two thing that you can nano manage on the trail is your energy level when we're at home we don't feed ourselves a constant stream of glucose but on the trail that's the best way to keep your energy up and having small amounts of glucose throughout the day will ensure that you don't get that major crash
1: if i go too long without eating i start to get a headache And then the problem is, once I eat, the headache doesn't go away. It's usually not till I've slept it off, and then I'm okay the next day.
0: I've experienced the same thing.
1: But I'm curious. I have read a book by Mark Sisson called The Primal Blueprint, and a lot of it is about our diet and looking at how people prehistorically ate and what their diet was like. And he said in there that you can train your body to go longer periods of time between meals and that your body will respond to that and it will adjust its insulin production so that it won't have that uh, blood sugar spike and crash sort of effect. So that's in day-to-day life. And I just wonder, can you train yourself in backpacking to not need to eat frequently? I don't know. Just kind of curious.
0: I don't know, because you go out for such a short, relatively short amount of time, it would be hard to train your body to respond.
1: Yeah, to me, that's the key variable. Like if you're backpacking all the time, or maybe a thru-hiker who spends six months on the trail.
0: Now that's, yeah.
1: Yeah, maybe after the first few weeks, they have adapted and don't need to eat constantly. I'm not sure. But for people like you and me who spend most of our time just, you know, like at a desk and then we take this week and go backpacking and put in a lot more strenuous activity than we ever do the rest of the year i think that's a different story just our bodies aren't adapted to that so it's good to keep them fueled the whole time
0: the number three thing that you can nano manage on the trail is your water level in a recent episode we talked about the downsides to using a hydration bladder But so many people have said that their favorite upside of using a hydration bladder is that they don't have to think about drinking. You know, don't think, just drink. They have this constant supply of water and they drink when it's hot. They drink when it's cold. They drink when it's raining, which is the hardest time to remember to drink because you're surrounded by water. But some people They do have to remind themselves to drink. And something that I've started doing is I sleep with my water bottle right next to me. Because then if I've done a poor job of hydrating throughout the day, I can drink. I always wake up in the middle of the night. So I'll drink whenever I wake up. And it's just a habit I've gotten into.
1: And really, it's hard to drink too much. I mean, technically it's possible to have too much water, but really, I think just the most annoying thing of over-drinking water on the trail is that you got to make a lot of pit stops. So that's kind of annoying, but it's certainly better than the alternative, which is dehydration. The number four thing you can nanomanage on the trail is to check your pace. Your pace changes constantly based on the terrain, the weather, how you're feeling even. And, I don't know, it's kind of a fun um, activity. For me, because you know, you're just hiking along, you have your brain is not highly occupied by just walking. But as you go up and down these hills and over roots and logs and rocks, I find myself nano managing like every footstep that I take and then how far apart those footsteps are. And generally, I'll kind of keep the same rate of stepping and I'll just vary the distance of my steps. So as I start going up a hill, I don't slow down my steps. I just make them a lot shorter. So I keep that same rhythm going. But I'm, you know, I'm I'm going slower so I can make it up that hill without, I guess, stressing my body too much. It's just kind of a fun challenge.
0: Yeah, Josh and I both noticed that we did this on our recent little day hike that we did. And we were talking about how our brains are so engaged sometimes when we... Our brains are so engaged sometimes. Um,
1: (laughs) True. Sometimes they're not. They're just wandering. (laughs) That's That's true. one of the joys of hiking, really.
0: (laughs) But there are these certain spots of the trail where you, you know, the trail is just all covered with roots or, you know, you have this big log or there's lots of rocks or you're crossing a creek and your brain all of a sudden engages and you are planning out each step. And that's a really exciting moment on the trail that you get to nanomanage these steps.
1: Yeah. And just FYI for beginning backpackers, two miles an hour is a great average pace on a trail. Don't be surprised if you're putting in one to one and a half miles an hour. And if you're over two miles an hour, you're moving along at a pretty good clip or you're on a really flat, smooth trail.
0: Yeah, that was one thing that surprised me when we first started backpacking together. Is that you know when I do like a treadmill type thing, I can walk at four, maybe four and a half miles an hour if I'm doing some speed walking. And I thought, why can't I keep up that pace on the trail? You have the the weight of your pack, you have this varied terrain, and to do two miles an hour is excellent. And the number five thing that you can nano manage on the trail is your thoughts. I recently took a little class on depression. And do I want to say it's about depression? It was about (laughs) depression. Um, I'm a leader in our church, and we were taking this class to learn how to help women deal with depression. And the number one thing they talked about was thoughts leading to feelings. And thoughts are a lot more powerful than we give them credit for. Sometimes we believe that feelings just come out of nowhere or feelings come because of what we're experiencing, but it's really these thoughts that feed what we're feeling. So when I'm on the trail and I'm feeling frustrated or just kind of negative, I like to go back to what my thought pattern has been. Thoughts are something that you can really have control over. So as you're on the trail, you are going to encounter difficult moments. And don't be too hard on yourself. It's okay to experience hard things and to push through them. You can do hard things. Don't be hard on yourself. You can do it. For today's Summit Gear review, we will be reviewing the ever-new Thai nonstick pot. Ti stands for...
1: Titanium? Yay! All right, so it's just T-I.
0: Yeah, I think that's the... uh Periodic Table of Elements, name for Uh the symbol. Abbreviation. Yeah, that's it. So this pot is especially great for family backpacking because it's lightweight, it's nonstick, and it's huge. It holds 1.9 liters, which that should be enough space to cook up noodles and sauce for the entire family. This pot has a nonstick coating, which is made of a silicone ceramic. It's not Teflon. Teflon had some issues where there was a chemical that was being released when Teflon got up to a high temperature i hope i got that right i'm not the sciency one but <laughs> that's, okay. that's more than i know that's how i understood it titanium is famous for being rugged and ultra light in order to get this pan to be so lightweight the titanium has to be rolled pretty thin And so, you're going to notice some things when you use this cookware that's going to be different from the cookware that you use at home. And if you look at your pans at home, you're going to notice that the sides of the pan are thin, but the bottom is very thick. And that's what gives you that even heat distribution. But with this pot, and with pretty much all backpacking pots, you're going to notice that the entire pot is thin. And so, anything that you cook in the pot, you have to be very careful about burning your food.
1: See, here's the thing with titanium. We think it's really strong because it is strong for its weight. And so what the manufacturers do is they use titanium and they make it very, very thin, and it's still stronger than any other material at that thickness would be. I mean, other materials would just completely crumple.
0: Oh, yeah. Think of a tinfoil, you know, disposable baking pan.
1: Right. Or a soda pop can. And so, yes, it is strong for its weight, but They're taking advantage of that in the manufacturing process by making something extremely thin and lightweight.
0: It's not something that you can just kick around. You've got to treat it carefully, especially if you don't want dings and dents in it. Another thing that you need to consider when you're using your titanium pot is that if it's heated without water in it, it will warp. So treat your titanium pots with love and care, and they'll last forever. They don't rust. The ever-new titanium nonstick pot has graduated marks at 500, 1,000, and 1,500 milliliters. And the pot itself, including the lid, weighs 7.4 ounces. I would call this a squatty pot. You know, a lot of backpackers carry tall, skinny pots because they're just cooking for one or two people. But this measures 6.5 inches in diameter and and 3.5 inches tall. So you really have a nice sized pot for cooking for your family. As far as maintenance goes, you're going to want to clean this pot with a non-metallic scrubby. The non-stick coating is still just a coating on metal, and so you'll have to be gentle as you clean out the pot. This particular pot, the Evernew Thai non-stick 1.9 liter pot, is about $75 to $80, depending on where you find it online, and we'll provide a link to the Evernew retailers page so you can find retailers in your area that sell this pot. But we found on REI a really great deal that includes this pot, but not the lid. So you get two pots, two pans, and the pans that the set comes with act as the lids. So depending on whether you think you'll be using other sizes as you backpack with your family, this might be a really great deal. The REI cook set, two pots, two pans, and it's $125. As opposed to this one single pan, which is $75 to $80 pot is it a pot or a pan i remember when my cousins came to visit one time my little sister got in an argument with our cousin christy about whether something was a pot or a pan it was like the argument of the century so technically evernew classifies this as a pot In my experience with this pot, the one thing that made me the most nervous was that the handles that you pull out from the pot are silicone covered, which is great because it makes it so you don't burn your hands when you grab the handles, but it's more like the handles are covered in a silicone sleeve. So when you lift the pot, those silicone sleeves are going to twist a little bit. I would have preferred that those handles be, you know, plasti-dipped or something so I could have a really great grip while lifting the pot. There are some words of caution on the outside of the box. The first one is no empty cooking ever. Empty cooking could be something like dry baking where you heat up the pot but you don't have any liquid in the pot. You just have like a, a little pan that has some muffin batter in it or something. So you can't do that kind of cooking in this pot you also need to avoid high power stoves because the titanium is so thin it overheats the titanium and could also lead to warping
1: so of course we took this pot and put it on our jet boil and popped popcorn in it (laughs)
0: We kind of held it on low heat on the jet boil. We had it on the simmer setting.
1: Yeah, this was the jet boil minimo, which you're able to dial it down to a simmer.
0: And we had plenty of oil in with our popcorn and we were moving the pot. You know, we didn't just leave it in one place. And we ended up possibly damaging the coating. That was our mistake. Don't do what we did. (laughs) There are other ways to cook popcorn on the trail, and we'll be talking about that in a future episode, I promise. I'm still perfecting the process because I love popcorn so much.
1: I think a big part of the issue was is that the jet boil, no matter how low you set the flame, it's still a flame that's in one spot, about one square inch. And it seems like there should be a solution for that. You know yeah, some th-
0: kind of flame disperser.
1: Right. For them to put out the minimo, which is a stove that can be reduced to a simmer, and yet to have that simmer concentrated all in one spot still doesn't really solve the problem or solve the need for why people want to simmer something. But anyway, back to the pot.
0: You really should not use a titanium pot or a titanium non-stick pot, especially, with your jet boil. It's something that's probably best suited to an alcohol stove or maybe a stove that has a more dispersed heat output. And we'll be talking about alcohol stoves in episode 73.
1: I know you're pretty excited about that because you have you have a box full of alcohol stoves. <laughs> so it's going to be fun to hear like how you use them.
0: I'm really excited about the alcohol stove episode. And I know we focused on the perils of using a jet boil with this pot, but I did have a really great experiment where I cooked baked beans in this pot with four tea light candles. It was so awesome. I just did it on the kitchen counter as just a little experiment. And after about three hours, the beans were perfect. So the ever new titanium 1.9 liter pot is a great sized pot for a family. The nonstick coating makes it easy to clean up. It cooks up pasta and sauce for a family of four to six and it packs down really conveniently in your pack. For today's backpack hack of the week, 24 hour food. If you're just going to be on an overnight trip, your food options open up significantly. You can easily pack a small serving of frozen meat. You can bring fresh fruits and vegetables, or you can carry dairy products or eggs. You know, you still have all those limitations of awkward food preparation. You don't have running water, so that's something to consider if you think you're going to be touching raw meat, and there's no way to preserve leftovers once the food is cooked. But if you're just going to be out for 24 hours, there's no reason why you can't take food fit for royalty.
1: The reason we're sharing this as a hack is because we talk all the time about calorie density. And we talk about how important it is to make sure that when you're on a week-long backpacking trip, you're really hitting that 100 calories per ounce or above calorie density so that you have enough calories for the whole week without carrying this exorbitant weight of food. And so because we talk about that so much, sometimes you have to back up a little bit and say, wait a minute, I'm going on an overnight trip. I can carry 10 pounds of food for 24 hours instead of 10 pounds of food that has to last a whole week. And that'll be just fine for an overnight trip. Your pack's not any heavier. Go for it. Put in some heavy stuff. It's okay.
0: And this is great for last minute trips because you can just grab food out of your fridge or out of your pantry and get out on the trail.
1: So just make sure it's easy to prepare on the trail and easy to clean up because those are still issues like you said. But the weight, eh, not so much an issue. It's just an overnighter.
0: And this has got to make foodies so happy. Sometimes I look at the food that we bring and I'm just like, I can't believe I'm going to be eating like this for five days. Plus doing one of the healthiest activities there is, but I'm eating Pop-Tarts. What? So I feel this dissonance. But this is a great opportunity to satisfy your need to be outdoors and have an incredible culinary experience.
1: And we both remember with great fondness day three of our Mount Hood hike after we had just crossed Elliott Wash, which was by far the most challenging piece of the hike, and we got to the campsite. And we had positioned a car there because one of our team was going to have to head home from that point. And so Bryce, who was one of our hiking buddies, had stashed a cooler full of steaks in that car. So we come into camp that evening, and he's already got the Coleman stove going, cooking steaks.
0: And he hadn't told anyone what he was doing.
1: It was a great dinner.
0: I just remember the shock of seeing real food on a table.
1: Yeah, all it took was was one thing, the steaks.
0: I think there was pie. I really can't remember anything other than the steaks.
1: Yeah, it was amazing.
0: (laughs) And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Donald Miller.
1: He said... And if these mountains had eyes, they would wake to find two strangers in their fences, standing in admiration as a breathing red pours its tinge upon earth's shore. These mountains, which have seen untold sunrises, long to thunder praise, but stand reverent, silent so that man's weak praise should be given God's attention.
0: That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, check out our new book, 40 Backpacking Hacks, on Amazon or iTunes. We'll see you next time on the first 40 miles. Levels. That's all. Okay. I'm just like seeing how far I am. Okay. Okay. Okay.
1: So are you saying you're micromanaging our um, distance from the microphone? (laughs) Yeah. Then after you've (laughs) circ, great point, great pain
0: point. The number two thing you can nano manage on the. Oh, I cracked my (laughs) wrist or something. And this is great for people who just want to get out. Oh, no, this is great for everyone.